Good morning. Today's scripture is from Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 through 22. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires, to the place that the Lord will choose, and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat, besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. This is the word of the Lord. Aren't you grateful, friends, that In our sorrows, God doesn't draw near and it's like, okay, now, come on, just be joyful. <laughs> you know, he's, a, he's a man of sorrows, right? He's, he's familiar with grief. He, he keeps track of all our sorrows. We're not defined by our sorrows. We don't 
languish in our sorrows, we pour out our sorrows to the Lord. And we can do that even as he is directing us to rejoice in him, trust in him. Like it, That's another sermon. <laughs> Suffice it to say, whatever's going on in your life right now, you don't have to pretend that away to give Deuteronomy your attention. Does that make sense? You can come to God with whatever's going on and look to him and wherever he's speaking to us through his word to care for you in whatever is going on. God loves to surprise us by caring for us at the point of our need from some of the places we would least expect. So listen for him today. We're listening, Lord. We're listening. The number of Americans who identify with no religion in particular is increasing. Do you know that? If you're reading the news, you're probably aware of that. It's showing up a lot more. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. Um, in your mind, it's Christians have their God. Muslims have their God. Other people have alternative forms of spirituality. Maybe you're not even convinced there is a God. Or if you think there is, maybe you wonder, what, what's with all the fuss about worshiping him in a certain kind of way? I mean, if the worship thing, religious thing works for you, friend, great, but you know, as far as I'm concerned, why not, why not join the growing number who aren't into worshiping anyone or anything at all? Well, if that's you, friend, or if that sounds a lot like a coworker or a classmate of yours, I, I've got something for you to consider. Consider this. You don't have to identify with a formal religion or a religious organization to be a worshiper. We say that again. You don't have to identify with a formal religion or a religious organization to very much be a worshiper. What is worship? What's well, a personal expression of, of devotion, of dependence, of delight? You want, you want to find out what you worship? Well, we'll answer questions like these. You'll discover your functional God of choice. Here we go. Where do you ultimately turn for provision? Where do you turn for provision? Or, or where do you turn for wisdom? For guidance in your life? To, to know what kind of choices to make or what to do? The answer to questions like that, friend, that is your chosen object of worship. No matter how much you confidently profess allegiance to no religion in particular. Hear that. So, so the answer could be, well, it's my own diligence or understanding. It could be whatever feels right to you or what other people say is good. It could be, you know, the behavior of your kids. It could be the esteem of your peers. It could be anything because we're all mastered by something. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is preaching to the Jewish people on the plains of the Jordan right before he dies. And he's, he's prepping them. He's, he's like a coach at halftime, okay? 
getting them ready to cross the river into Canaan. What's that? The land that the Lord was about to give them under Joshua's leadership. And in chapter 18, Moses addresses a, some different situations that were coming down the pike, so to speak, for Israel and the land. But there's a central theme in this chapter. There, there's a, a current, a strong current that's, that's running throughout the whole thing. Again and again in different ways, the Lord says, Israel, look to me as your portion. Look, look to me as your portion. Where should you turn for the provision you need to sustain your life? Look to me. Where should you turn for the, the wisdom you need to, to navigate life? Look to me. I am your provider, Yahweh says. I am your wisdom. Friend, might we say with King David what Josh read earlier? The Lord is my chosen portion. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I have set the Lord always before me. You make known to me the path of life. I have no good apart from you because in you I take refuge. Is, is that how you're living right now? Do you sound like that? Do you pray like that? Do you, do you live like that? Is that how you're living? You, you may have worshipped something or someone else this week. <laughs> Quite possibly. Deuteronomy 18 tells us we have better reasons to worship the Lord. To choose him as our portion. Look to the Lord as your portion. This is the point, the whole chapter. Look to the Lord as your portion and all he says and all he gives. So how do we do that? What's that look like practically? Well, that's the structure of this morning's sermon. Give you a few answers to that from the passage before us. Here's the first way we choose the Lord as our portion. Trust the Lord to provide as you minister in his name. These aren't the only answers to that question, right? Like the entire Christian life is about seeking after and holding fast to Jesus as our portion. But it's helpful to know concretely, practically, specifically, what does that look like? Well, here's a good one. Trust the Lord to provide as you minister in his name. Uh, Moses begins in, in verses one through eight of the chapter by describing how the entire nation should provide for the Levitical priest, um, which were just the adult males in the tribe of Levi. Well, what made them special? Numbers 18 tells us. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. To do the service of the tent of meeting. So, the Lord did what? He set apart one of the 12 tribes for a unique or special purpose. They were responsible for conducting the ministry God required at the tabernacle or the tent where God dwelt in the midst of his people. They had all kinds of crazy privileges. They had access into God's presence. They served him on the nation's behalf and they taught God's word to his people. Crazy privileges. 
And in exchange, the Lord what? He required all the other tribes, look at verse three, to set aside certain portions of their offerings, verse four, and the first fruits of the produce of their land for the Levites. So unlike all the other tribes, they didn't have a a large allocation of agricultural land. They didn't have a big landed inheritance. Verse two, they shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance. They had to trust the Lord to provide as they ministered in his name. And, And we know from the surrounding verses, Moses is not commending a life of poverty. The Lord is not saying, hey, all of, most of you, nearly all of you, I'm going to bless you with all kinds of economic wealth and riches. You guys over here, well, you get to know me. No, no. The rest of the nation is charged with a responsibility, a holy responsibility, to make material provision for the Levites. What's the point? God cares for all his people, body and soul. So what does it mean for the Lord then to be Levi's inheritance? Well, it means Levi will be nourished, sustained, provided for by what is rightfully the Lord's. Look back at verse one. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. Real simply, what does that mean? What's his is theirs. What's God's is the Levites. They will be fed not at a table that that they spread for themselves through the labor of their hands, but at a table that the Lord himself prepares for them with what is rightfully his. And and that, that unique, what is unique? Unique material dependence the Lord required of Levi illustrated for the whole nation in a very powerful way, the dependence the Lord required from all of them. Deuteronomy 11, verse 11. The land that you, all of y'all, are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for. If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Who's the giver in Canaan for everybody? The Lord. Yes, I'm Levi's portion in a unique way, a visibly material way. But even though the rest of you have land, you you are just as dependent on my provision, said the Lord. Just as dependent. Follow the Levite's example. That's the point. Question for you, friend. What does the Levitical priesthood under the old covenant, all the Levites, point to under the new? What's it point to today? This moment in redemptive history. Well, newsflash, it's not pastors. It's not pastors. 
It's not missionaries. It's not full-time Christian workers. Do you know who it is? It's Jesus. <laughs> and that's not like, oh, that's Sunday school answer, Jesus. No, it really is Jesus. Why? Because he's our great priest. He's our great priest. Listen, Jesus is the one, look at verse five, who stands and ministers in the name of the Lord on your behalf, Christian. Pleading the merit of his shed blood. Jesus is the one who guards the church. The people of God in whom the spirit dwells. Jesus is the word made flesh who teaches us all we need for life and godliness. Jesus is the faithful son who shows us what does it mean to be fully human? (laughs) To depend on the father for all our needs. In other words, all Levi was supposed to do as an example for the nation of Israel, Jesus perfectly does infinitely better and more faithfully. Hebrews 7. The former priests, Levites, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save. What a comfort that is. Those three little words. He is able. He's able to save those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And here's the amazing thing, okay? When you become a Christian, follow me here, all right? Not the rain, follow me, all right? I'm aware, we're not getting wet. When you become a Christian, Jesus' privileges and blessings become your privileges and blessings. They do, including the privilege of serving as a priest. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you, church, people of God, King's Way, you are a chosen race, a what? A royal priesthood. Do you have the same office as Jesus Christ? Not exactly. Right? Not exactly. There is what? One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's not Doug Roberts as much as I love him. Okay? It's none of us, right? There's one mediator between God and man. But we share in our great priest's privileges. We absolutely do. As, as Jesus stands and ministers before the Lord, Deuteronomy 18, 7, so do we as his people. We stand and minister before the Lord. But, but Matthew, I thought that was your job as a pastor. Don't we pay you to do that for us? Even, even the title in our culture, right? Who is the minister? Loads me with an 800-pound gorilla. It's not biblical. Who stands and ministers before the Lord under the new covenant? Ephesians 4.12. My job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Translation, upholding the worship of God is your work, church. 
guarding the purity of the church, that's your work. Taking God's word, helping the people around you to trust them and obey him, that's your work. That's not what pastors get paid to do. That's the privilege God has given you under the new covenant. So, So what does God say to the Levites as model Israelites, exemplary, illustrative people of God? He says, trust me to provide as you minister in my name. Christian, today, what does the Lord say to you? Brother, sister, trust me to provide as you minister in my name. Same promise, same exhortation. Is there a work of ministry that you know God has called you to do? Maybe you're thinking about it right now. But the fear of lacking provision is in some way holding you back from saying yes to God. As I ask that, I want you to remember something. Trusting the Lord to provide for you is not this just kind of, it's not just a nice idea or a, or a comforting spiritual notion or, or kind of a, a vibe or a zone we get into where it's like, hold on, wait a minute. I'm trusting the Lord. Yes. It looks like something. It requires action. If you trust the Lord to provide for you as you minister in his name, you will live a different kind of life. You you won't just stay here and and feel better vibes. You'll live differently, really differently. Examples. It could look like quitting your second job or declining a promotion so you can spend time ministering to your wife and kids. Looks like giving sacrificially to resource gospel ministry instead of doing the American thing and just accumulating a larger nest egg. It it looks like asking your non-Christian friend a, a spiritual question when you know inside of you, you don't have all the answers. It looks like stepping out into a a new realm of service in the church or leadership among the people of God, even when you feel weak and insufficient. Why, Why can we trust God in those ways? And so many more to provide for us as we minister in his name. Second Corinthians 9, 8 tells us why. And God is able. There's a theme this morning. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, brothers and sisters. You may abound in every good work. I, you know, I think here of, of my boy's experience, three boys, my boy's experience of going on a trip where their mom is present and providing for them versus going on a trip with dad where hypothetically I am present and providing for them. (laughs) And it plays out like this. When mom's present, mom, I need water. It's right here, son. Mom, I need food. Well, it's right here, son. Mom, I need a dry pair of black socks. It's right here, son. (laughs) Scenario two. Dad, where are the wipes? I don't know. <laughs> Dad, I need hand sanitizer. Why didn't you bring it? Yeah, it's just like, it's radically different, right? Here's the point of the illustration. 
God is not like me. He's like my wife. Don't take that out of context or put that on her Facebook this week. But are you tracking with me, friend? Do you know, you know what I'm saying? What's the point? Our God, he knows all of our needs. All our needs as we minister in his name. Even before we find them out, even before we feel them. And, and like my bride, he is faithful to anticipate and plan and perfectly provide for all you need as you minister in his name. You know, the nation of Israel pretty woefully failed the Levites. Just read the rest of the Old Testament. They, they really never did any of this. Friend, the true Israel, Christ Jesus, he will never fail you. He'll never fail you. Choose him as your portion. How? How's that get legs, Williams? Well, by trusting him to provide as you minister in his name. Here's the second way. Point number two. Do not seek wisdom in the kingdom of darkness. Verses 9 to 13. Do you, do you know, my friend, that the kingdom of Satan is just as real as the kingdom of God? That's not something we, at least in kind of our typical stream of evangelical circles, we often talk about, and sometimes that's a reaction, many times that's a reaction. to false teaching that sees the evil one under every rock, bush, tree, and shrub. But I hope you realize the biblical response to that error is not to pretend he doesn't exist, but rather to think about him biblically, as God teaches us to. Because his power and kingdom are real. Ephesians 6.12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You, you survey all scripture teaches about Satan and the kingdom of darkness, and it says a lot. What do you learn? The evil one's doom is sure, and his present influence is deadly. 1 Peter 5.8. So freak out and blame him for all your troubles. <laughs> no. Be sober-minded. King's way. Be watchful. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How does, how does the evil one do that? How does he devour? Well, his tactics haven't changed since the Garden of Eden, frankly. How's he do it? How's he devour? He sets himself up 
presents himself to you, me, as an alternative source of wisdom, insight, truth, revelation, and power. Eve, don't look to God to reveal the truth. Why would you do that? Listen to me. Do you realize Satan knows many things about the past, the present, and the future? A lot more than you do, and I do. He's a cunning foe. And he's able to reveal many things to those who lend him their ear. But the spiritual knowledge that he gives even when it's partially true, it never leads to life and joy. Where does it lead? To slavery and fear and death. Christopher Wright says it this way. It is a universal human desire to know the unknown, to have some preview of the future, to get guidance for decisions, to exercise control over others and and ward off the harm others might aim at oneself. Alienated from the living God, humans devise the dark arts for such purposes. And that's exactly what the Canaanites did. It's exactly what they did. They they sought wisdom in the kingdom of darkness. They They didn't look to the Lord as the way and the truth and the life. They looked to the evil one. And in rejecting God's wisdom and God's revelation and God's guidance, they they rejected God himself. Look at verse 10, Hebrews 18. There shall not be found among you anyone, categorically, who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. To Moloch. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things, and many like them, is an abomination to the Lord. Friend, the point is very strong and simple and clear. The Lord forbids any practice that traffics in the occult. Any practice. Any any practice that involves seeking what? Spiritual wisdom, guidance, power from anyone other than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Whether it feels as as innocent as as a horoscope or as deadly as pagan witchcraft. For you to engage, for us to engage in such things is way more than just experimenting or or toying with alternative forms of spirituality. You're embracing what God hates. You're, You're exchanging dependence and trust on the authority of his revelation for an imposter. You traffic in the occult and you commune with the father of lies. You you commit spiritual treason and you you betray 
the Lord, your God. Moses uses that phrase three times in verses 12 to 14, because to reject him as your source of wisdom and revelation and understanding is personal. It's treason. Now I doubt, okay, I I highly doubt that many of you are thinking right now, Matthew, I really appreciate that warning because I was just considering this morning whether I should, you know, experiment with some voodoo. I highly doubt, as I know many of you in this room, that you were thinking that. You were thinking, is it morning yet? (laughs) The, The temptation to engage with the occult, on the whole, knowing you, I wouldn't put that high on the list of perceived spiritual dangers because we're Christians in the West. It's a different story in other parts of the world. I mean, there's a sense in which alternative forms of spirituality, including witchcraft, seem to be becoming increasingly common in our day. But, but let me tell you where I see the greatest risk for most of us as your pastor in this category. Okay? Two examples. First, whether it's the games we play or the movies we watch or the books we read, we slowly but surely think of evil as entertainment. Can I go here? Will you listen humbly, thoughtfully, for what God might be saying to you and not just react in the next 15 seconds (laughs) to me, the man? You know, we say to our friends, hey, you want to go watch that new horror flick? I, I heard it's pretty epic. I'm not going to give you a list of movies God approves. Don't ask me for one afterward because you won't find it in the Bible. That list doesn't exist. But Christian, I warn you on the authority of the word of God. Please guard your soul. He's far more real than some of you know. Please guard your soul. Many a producer, many a screenwriter, they they delve into the demonic in an attempt to give you a bigger thrill, a bigger fright, a bigger emotional high than last year's miniseries. And spiritual darkness is not funny. It's not idle entertainment. It's it's more real than you know. And here's the point. Here's, Here's Satan's strategy in the West, okay? He would love nothing more than to dull your senses and sear your conscience such that when the power of darkness is literally on display in front of your eyes, you're just thinking about the popcorn. What? I mean... Scripture doesn't hide our eyes from the occult. 
praise God for that, right? It's not like, ah, cover your women and children. Now let's read this part of God's word. Yeah, it's like, no, no. So we shouldn't hide our eyes categorically, but, but hear me. There is a huge difference between becoming numb to evil and rejoicing in the triumph of Christ over evil. Those are not the same thing, King's Way. And I'm not talking here about, about what you can watch or read without getting too scared. I mean, the number of people that have come up to me and said, well, you know, I'm big enough to handle that. <laughs> well, last time I checked, God didn't call you a roaring lion. It's not what can you watch or read without getting scared. I'm talking about ensuring, protecting, guarding your heart so that you keep perceiving as abominable what God says is abominable. That's what I'm talking about. That might not look the same for everybody, but don't you take that as a giant loophole and just run a whole freight of mind-numbing, soul-destroying. How's the popcorn? Through that. Here's a second example. Did you notice every evil practice? Look at verses 10 and 11. Every evil practice here involves looking to someone or something other than the Lord for spiritual wisdom. Did you catch that? That's another current. That's another theme. What do they all do? They deny the truth and sufficiency of what Yahweh reveals. And they say, Lord, not good enough. I need more. I I want another counselor. What do you have to say, Satan? Friend, there's no neutral territory at all. There's no Switzerland when it comes to where you're going to look for truth. There's no neutral territory, okay? Either you are looking to the Lord or you are looking to the evil one. Two choices. And even as I say that, I can hear the protest in some of your minds, you know? Matthew, newsflash, I'm not worshiping demons. (laughs) I just find New Age spirituality and self-help podcasts more useful than all that stuff I heard in church growing up. It's not like I'm sacrificing my kids to Moloch. I mean, how primitive. Well, I'm grateful you're not. (laughs) But, but know this, friend, please hear this. There is a face, a face that presses through and lurks within and gazes out from every rival to the spiritual wisdom and guidance God has given us in his word. That's the face of Satan. And supposedly secular approaches to wisdom, all religious. I'm not spiritual at all. I'm just looking within myself for truth. I'm just going with whatever feels true to me. That's his specialty. Do you see that? Anytime, in any way, you abandon the authority of the word of God as the only normative truth in your life, However you do that, in whatever way that plays out, you are forming an alliance with the kingdom of darkness. No neutral territory. It's either God 
or the evil one. The Lord is your portion, brothers and sisters. Do not, do not seek wisdom, understanding, insight, pleasure, joy, entertainment. In the kingdom of darkness, Jesus is your portion. Look to him. Here's the last way we do that. Listen to the God who has spoken through Jesus. And there's a connection here to what we've just been talking about that I want you to not miss. Look at verse 14 and 15. This is critical and one of the places where a lot of our Bible editors don't serve us because they make us think with a new heading. It's a new, completely new thing. It's not. It's not. Okay, verse 14. These nations which you are about to dispossess, they listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall what? Listen. In other words, God isn't just saying to Israel, to, to his people, to us. Don't listen to that. He's saying, don't listen to that. Because I created and saved you to listen to me. Listen to me. What, what was a true prophet in the Old Testament? You ever wonder what's a prophet? That word can kind of get bandied about. Well, a prophet in the Old Testament, someone who spoke God's word to God's people on God's behalf at God's initiative. That's a decent definition, I think. So why not just speak directly to God's people? Well, the Lord actually did that. Once, <laughs> 40 years earlier, Mount Sinai, he did that, and they were utterly terrified. They cried out to Moses, look at verse 16. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Oh, come on, Israel, you're overreacting. If I would have been there, knowing all that I know, I would have said, hi, Lord, it's good to see you. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> and nor would I. Why not? Because the voice of the Lord communicates the glory of the Lord. The word of God imparts and reveals the, the splendor of God. And in the presence of his glory, who can stand? We, we've had, we had one this morning. It was real quick, but we've had some crazy thunderstorms this week. Have you all noticed that? You live around here, just some, maybe some of you are still without power. I don't know. But we've had some crazy thunderstorms. Listen to how Psalm 29 describes the thundering power of God's voice. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. Your voice isn't like that. <laughs> Your words aren't like that. I mean, praise God. We're not just walking around speaking words and whoop, strip that forest bare. It's like... His voice, his word, categorically different from ours, reveals his glory, displays his power, that the fear that filled Sinai in Israel's heart was, was exceedingly good and right. Look at verse 17. They are 
right in what they have spoken. God doesn't say that about Israel very many times in the Bible. (laughs) That's one of them. They are right to fear me. Oh, Oh, that we would have the same posture of heart. When God's word is read, friend, it's, it, hope you know when we do that on Sundays, it's not like, well, we need to transition, so how about we pray or somebody can read some scripture? You know, let me check if my coffee's still warm. God is speaking to you. God's revealing his glory to you. Like Israel, though, we, we need a mediator, don't we? A direct revelation of the glory of God would utterly crush you. And so God's promise here to give them a prophet like Moses, mediator, was a tremendous expression of God's grace. And if you look at verses 18 and 19, this is a really important text in the Old Testament because it becomes the standard by which every prophet that came after Moses in Israel is measured. And here again, I found Chris Wright's observations categories helpful. So what marks true prophecy in the Old Testament? We've already defined what a prophet is, but what marks true prophecy? First, true prophecy is marked by God's initiative. Look at verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet, Yahweh says. I'll raise them up. Nobody gets to appoint themselves. Uh, God does the appointing, no less than God does the revealing. He initiates. We, We don't create or discover spiritual revelation for ourselves. We are revelation receivers. God initiates. He reveals himself. Second, verse 18, true prophecy is marked by God's model. I will raise up for them a random prophet. No, a prophet like you, like Moses. Moses in his his humility, in in his submission to God's authority, in the personal integrity that marked his life. He validated his identity as a true prophet. And God's ways haven't changed in that regard. Third, true prophecy is marked by God's message. Verse 18 still, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Notice, true prophet doesn't mix what he thinks with what God says. He speaks what God tells him to speak and only what God tells him to speak and whatever he says is always consistent with what God has already said. God's message. Fourth, true prophecy is marked by God's authority. Look at verse 19. Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. Translation, the way you respond to God's appointed messenger is the way you're responding to God himself. Now, quick time out because I want to make something in this context crystal clear, okay? So regardless of your church background, whether or not you consider yourself a Christian, listen to me, okay? The way prophecy functioned under the old covenant is very different than the way prophecy functions today. Full stop. (laughs) All right, what's changed? What's not God's faithfulness to speak it's that prophetic words today, they don't come to us in the, in the normative form of thus saith the Lord. All right? So when, when a member of our church comes up to the ministry mic here 
with a spontaneous impression or something that they believe the Lord wants to, wants to communicate to us as his body for our upbuilding, our encouragement, our consolation. What, what are they doing there? They're not just being weird. They're, they're sharing a precious gift. A gift that's essential, not, not, not optional for the spiritual health and life of our body. But pay attention, brothers and sisters, to, to what the Spirit is doing in our midst on Sunday mornings or in your community group during the week. Listen for what he wants to say to the people around you. Earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. But no, when you step out in that gift, you're not speaking. You will never speak the inerrant word of God. <laughs> why, why else would Paul tell us to, to weigh prophecies or judge prophecies in 1 Corinthians 14 or that prophecies will pass away? 1 Corinthians 13, does God's word pass away? Nope. So what makes prophecy in the church today different? Why is it so different? Well, why, think of it this way. Why does God no longer give us authoritative revelation through prophets, human prophets? Friend, it's, it's because he has spoken to us in a definitive, supreme, decisive, once and for all kind of way in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God did speak to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Or in a sun kind of way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Deuteronomy 18 doesn't just point us to what a priest we have in Jesus. It points us to what a prophet we have in Jesus. As Peter recognizes, Acts 3, if you want to look there later, Jesus is the long-awaited prophet like Moses. So what's that mean? What's, what's the bottom line here? If you want spiritual wisdom or guidance, or revelation, or truth, or understanding, or insight, or power, you have to listen to Jesus. That's the point. The most important way we look to the Lord as our portion is by listening and trusting and obeying the word of Christ as our highest authority. The whole inspired Old Testament is all about Jesus. The whole inspired New Testament, it's all about Jesus. And so is all true, albeit imperfect, prophecy today. 1 John 4, 1. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. What, what's the test? What, what do you do when somebody forwards you an email from a, a self-appointed prophet? Or you, you see a billboard and you know, who is that person? Smiling face, prophet, so-and-so. Like, okay, well, what's the test? How, how do we know? Well, it's simple, friend. Are the words they're speaking consistent with the word of Christ? Amen. That's the test, okay? Many self-appointed prophets in the church today fail that test. No less than, hear me, all kinds of supposedly prophetic voices on social media. How we love to use that as an adjective of commendation. Oh, that was prophetic. 
Well, maybe it was, but the way you'll know is, did it agree and line up with the word of God? (laughs) Remember that, friend. Be careful what you listen to. God is committed to upholding the integrity of his word. Because his glory is in that. And so the, the judgment, the penalty for false prophecy in verse 20 of chapter 18 is really serious for a really good reason. What is it? That same prophet shall die. He'll die because God's committed to upholding the integrity of his word. So let me give you a, a final application here before we wrap up. When you are speaking to other people, whether in person, like after Sunday morning, or online, please be careful, my friends, to not, not represent your thoughts and opinions as if they are the word of God. What do I mean? Can we have, can you have, a biblically informed opinion about how to vote, or what movies to watch, there we go again, <laughs> or what music to listen to, or, or what kind of public health policy is best in the midst of a pandemic. Can you have biblically informed opinions about all those things? Absolutely. I go so far as to say you should. You have to, okay? But our application of scripture is not the same thing as scripture. Remember that. So, so take care, please take care that your strongest feelings and public typing expressions of certainty are reserved for what scripture explicitly says. Be careful. What scripture says, God says. So I implore you, friend, don't ultimately listen to what, to what your friends think or you feel or what your family says or what just seems logical in your own mind. Listen to the God who has revealed himself to you through Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And if you're not sure how to do that when it comes to making life decisions, maybe you're thinking, okay, Matthew, I want to you know, choose God as my portion. All he gives and says, and I'm, I'm tracking with you. I want to do that by listening to the God who's revealed himself in Jesus. But what in the world does that have to do with who I date next week? Well, a lot, actually. But if you need some help crossing that chasm, like you're on board with Jesus, but you have no clue how that applies here, well, I have a book recommendation for you. (laughs) Okay? It's Kevin DeYoung's small book, Just Do Something. A liberating approach to finding God's will. Subtitled, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc., He's getting us, isn't he? Like even the open door thing. I've heard that. It's a really biblical book. Not the Bible, but biblical. (laughs) It can help you know how to listen to the God who has spoken to us through Jesus. May we be a people, King's Way, who look to the Lord as our portion. He's a good portion. the best portion. Every gift he gives is supremely good. Every word he speaks is eminently trustworthy. I love the way chapter 18 ends. 
Moses says the true test of a prophet is fulfillment. That's what he says come to pass. Why is that the test? For an amazing soul-strengthening reason. It's this. The only words the Lord has ever spoken and will ever speak are words that always come to pass and are perfectly and completely true. You can trust the God who has spoken to us in Jesus. Let's pray.